and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. Hello, hello, welcome. Oh my goodness, oh, oh my goodness, there's... Rome, the eternal city. Greatest empire the Western world has ever known. <laughs> All right, I had to do that. John, you gotta warn me when you're gonna. I get know, I know. I I was hoping I could get through. I could just like sneak it in before we started, but no, I, I'm on the there. ball. I I am I am ready to go. <laughs> oh man! All right, oh, welcome it is a everyone. Wonderful supplies. surprise, surprise. So. <laughs> there you go. Hey everyone, how's everyone doing? <laughs> Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. You Hello, are Don Sam Alden. Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am Don Sam Alden, and we are going to talk today about um, in our misogyny in the ancient world series, we're going to talk today about the Lex Julia or the Julian Laws. So what made you, what prompted you about wanting to talk about this particular aspect of the ancient world and its treatment of women? Well, funny you should ask. We're going through a period right now where laws regimenting women's activities and their bodies seem to be on the rise. And I, um, that made me think of uh, the, these Lex Julia and how um, Augustus Caesar, Lex Julia technically just means laws of the Julian family. So mm -hmm. it's any of the emperors in the Julian bloodline that enacted laws were called Lex Julia. But particularly the, the uh, laws governing marriage and adultery and inheritance um, that Augustus put into place um, during his reign uh, after all of the, after the last um, civil war ended with, with him on top. It is, I mean, this is an, uh, um, a crucial period in Roman history, probably in my opinion, the most crucial period in Roman history. It's the period from which Rome transitions abruptly, violently, from republic to empire. Now, yes. for our purposes, how much does that affect the role of women in the uh, society? Well, not necessarily much, but what you do have is now you have a more direct individual kind of control over women's lives, everyone's lives, because you have an emperor now as opposed to a senate. So Right, and so he could make 
laws based on his personal agenda and they would be enacted. It doesn't mean that they were popular always, Mm -hmm. but they would be enacted. So So Augustus's, um, one of the reasons that the Roman Empire lasted as long as it did is because of Augustus, formerly Octavius. When he became mm-hmm. emperor, he became Augustus. Um, and you Augustus, say, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say yeah. if you wanted to get the earlier where he comes yes, from. we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. I just wanted to say that um, that he was able to pivot from military leader to um, to administrative leader. Um, unlike a lot of military leaders, you know, once they're having to govern what they conquered, everything falls apart because they're not good administrators. Augustus was good at both. And it was the, uh, the, um, the laws and the structures that he put in place during his very long reign, um, 71 years, I believe, um, that really allowed Rome to continue rolling along through um, many of the just disastrous rulers that followed further on down the line. Um, um, but yes, for, as you said, yeah. let's go back and set the stage. And I, I have to, I'd be remiss if I don't jump in because of my love and fascination of ancient Rome in saying how much I dislike Augustus for so many different reasons. Um, he, well, his, his, you tell, his life, you tell. His, well, yeah, no, his life, you know, so he, he, his reign, um, was from about 29, I guess it was 29 BC to 14. He had lived was, obviously um, far actually than that. 63 BC was well, that's when he, first... that, that's when he was yeah. born. That's when he was born. His reign oh, right. doesn't yes. start. Yes. Yeah, sorry. No. Sorry. So his reign starts later because what happens is of course you've got the Julian line. He is from He's adopted by Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. So um, the Julians are an ancient Roman family, supposedly descended from the goddess Aphrodite. Um, and why wouldn't they be? Because if they were the children of Aphrodite and um, um, Aeneas, sorry, I don't know what went on in my head. So Aeneas being the, the mythical founder of Rome. And if you listen to our other podcasts on the Parallax, with Dr. Gary Stickle, I tease Gary a lot about how the fact that they, of course, were descended from a goddess and the great hero in the uh, in the Iliad. Well, but, of course, so, of yeah. course. So you so you have that, and then you have uh, uh, you know um, Augustus Caesar, so Octavius. So the reason I don't like him is because actually, in battle, he was an absolute coward and fake. So there is a great scene where he goes. He, every time there's a battle that's about to take place that his forces are part of, he mysteriously gets sick and has to stay in his tent. And it gets oh to the point where, where the where his rivals, the the soldiers of the rivals out of his uh, rival forces, would mock him from afar in the most profane, offensive ways, challenging all aspects of his being. So, so there's that. There's the fact that he has that sort of behavior pattern. That so you didn't like him because he had pre-battle jitters. He had pre. Yes, that's it. I am. I am totally biasing it. Well, there's there's that, and the, the fact that he would drape himself. He'd adorn himself in the achievements of a great warrior, and he wasn't. And that he was duplicitous and all all sorts of behaviors that I you know uh, that we'd like to see be different in our sort of heroic figures. Of course, we know in the ancient world, these guys were not saints. So, well, and yeah, he particularly stands out in being a weasel. So yeah, being a weasel um, may have been morally objectionable, but, uh, but it, it worked for Augustus. It sure did. He he came out on top and he came out on top. He did create structures that led to a stable, initially stable, mm-hmm. uh, Roman Empire. Of course, the people who followed him were not necessarily that stable. You go through this crazy period, and then you finally get right. the, the reign of the five great emperors. So anyway, just the backdrop is, so he's the first right. Roman emperor. And So yes, so let's go. take a look at Rome mm-hmm. pre-empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Rome... 
extended out into Italy, right? At first, Rome was not yet Italy, mm-hmm. um, but it extended out into, expanded out into the peninsula um, by oh. originally um, forming uh, associations with the local tribes and, and other city-states. They were the um, kind of the backwoods people. They were thought of as more the rustics. Right, right. Romans, sort yeah. of the indigenous population type yeah, of viewpoint. Not yeah. the sophisticated empire would think of. Maybe the best way people could think of them is literally backwoodsmen, like outdoorsmen, rustic yeah. guys and rough-hewn women. Um, and uh, formed this thing called the Italian Confederacy. And this was crucial in the rise of Rome because... Um, they fought the Punic and the Macedonian Wars in the second and third century BCE. Um, so between 300 and 100 BCE. Um, and so uh, as Rome expanded outward and sort of absorbed those uh, Italian city-states and local tribes into the empire, um, they gave them a sort of special status uh, which made all of, um, which made Rome sort of like the first among equals. We'll see this again when, you know, when the empire is established and, and the emperor is seen as the first citizen, right? Mm -hmm. The, The citizen among citizens, but essentially still ruling. Um, and then between uh, second century BCE and first century BCE, so between you know two hundred BCE and zero BCE, we had the servile wars um, and social wars where the the native population started to um, rebel against the encroachment of Roman rule, and then we had internal um, you know we had the uh, the civil wars where um, the triumvirates that they put in place uh, before G- Julius Caesar took over as, you know, the Caesar, and then after Julius Caesar te- took over with the rebellion, um, the triumvirates, you know, finally collapsed, and the last man standing was Octavian Augustus. Indeed. Yeah, just to add a few other little uh, brushstrokes with it. So Please one do. of the things that happened with Rome so you have uh, in early Rome, you know, there are many myths of its founding. One of its myths, of course, being that Aeneas came after the Trojan War, that they're connected to the Trojans. That And, and it's a point of contention still for scholarship as to whether they really were connected. There is some evidence that they were connected to the people who were in Troy at that time. And that some evidence saying, no, they were native indigenous population. That put that aside. There were other cultures there at the same time. And by that yes. time, I mean 8th century, roughly 8th century BC. So you have the Etruscans and you have the Greeks. And you have two different kinds of, though similar in ways, they are distinct. I mean, the Etruscans are, to some uh, scholars, they, they may be from a pre-Indo-European group. And again, that's scholarship, that's genetics that they're looking into now as opposed to the Indo-Europeans of the uh, Greeks. And, and if you listen to our podcast with Vicky Noble, you'll know we're talking about the Indo-Europeans and the Anatolian uh, farmer groupings, the differences between them, the idea that the one, the Anatolians were more matriarchal and the Indo-Europeans were more patriarchal. Right. So you have the Etruscans there and they influenced the Romans in a lot of ways that we don't, that many people may not realize in terms of architecture and other kinds of structural forms the Etruscans were the big dogs of Italy, of the Italian peninsula, for centuries. And then the Romans rise and eclipse them. But it was the Etruscans who were very mannered, cultured, and far more egalitarian with women. Yes. Then you have the Greeks, who were not. Anyway. <laughs> who were uh, so not. <laughs> who were so not. But they influenced Romans as well. And I think you see that, you know, as, as you're going to be talking about, you're going to see that a little bit of that tension with the kind of very patriarchal mindset. And, and all indications, again, are that, uh, I should say, it, it's we seem to indicate that Romans are descended from that same Indo-European grouping. But again, it's, there's a possibility there's a connection to Troy. But again, so you have that still patriarchal aspect, but then you have these other strains that are in there, which 
influence things. We get down to now the first century BC, as you were talking about, and the Roman Empire. You have Julius Caesar, uh, who, of course, is assassinated. Uh, and then that produces the civil war. Uh, and that comes down to, in the end, a battle between uh, Octavius, who becomes Augustus, and good old Brutus, Marcus Brutus, I'm not Brutus, sorry, uh, Mark Anthony. Um, so yes. you have that conflict, and which is eventually won uh, by wily, old, weaselly Octavius. Right. So, and right. here we are. And here we are. So um, in terms of marriage at the time, just a quick reminder that marriage was not... Um, not a choice of the two people getting married, but it was about family allegiances. It was about political alliances. Um, it was about inheritance conservation. It was about amassing wealth in the family. So these were the idea that marriage was for love was absolutely not, not even in the picture. If you had a good relationship with your spouse that's you know that was like the the extra bonus but um for these upper class families uh for whom these laws were really created this was all political hmm. so looking to gain uh, good relationships uh to help them move up in the political sphere or to make a right. good merger between the two families that sort of thing Yes, and to and to consolidate, you know, to keep wealth in the upper classes as well. Um, I, thought that, I thought that was interesting as looking at all of this stuff. That how much? I mean, obviously, I think, of course, for us in this era, uh, and I, certainly for me, I want to believe in the romance of marriage and of love and of relationships. And, but like you say, that has nothing to do with it by and large. Exactly. It's a exactly. like like you say, an interesting byproduct if that happens. But they're just planning things and it's and it's not the women planning the merger of course right 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 it's it's a business partnership and it is planned by the father the potter familius and um and uh and the pot the 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 power of the potter familius um is reinforced by these uh laws because a lot of the decisions that were made about who is punished um, and who gets to punish whom, uh, the power rests firmly in the hands of the paterfamilias. So and, the... Uh-huh. Go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that, and then one of the things that talk about, I'm trying to find the exact phrase, I believe the, uh, the phrase that they used was... Um, in the hand, and that's, that's the Latin equivalent for that phrase, in the hand, in terms of marriage um, between two people. And so it was, oh, there it is. Okay, it's in manum, in manum. So you, you there, you were literally handed from, handed from your father, the paterfamilias, to yep. the guy you're being married to. So it's like a, like a little baby. They just take the lady, they lift her little lady legs up and pass them over to the guy that's going to run her life now. So. Exactly, exactly. So there were two um, Lex Julia that uh, particularly govern um, marriage and inheritance laws. Um, in 18 BCE was the Lex Julia de Maritandis Ordinibus. Um, and then in nine... <laughs> She manages to speak a little Latin. Um, and then in 9 AD, uh, those laws were, um, were adjusted with the Lex Papia Popeia. Um, these were not, not popular legislation. And the reason that, you know, one of the reasons that it was adjusted in 9 AD was to make it a little bit more palatable. Um, but, uh, so what were, what were the differences? Why don't we talk? About well, let's, let, yeah, let's start at the sure. beginning. So, um, the first set of laws were primarily about adultery. So when Rome transferred from a Republic to an empire, dynasty, family dynasties, became much more important for the upper class. 
um, because a family dynasty was going to rule the uh, the empire. So bloodlines became important. And when bloodlines become important, the first thing on the chopping block is women's sexual freedom. It had to be regulated to guard these bloodlines. A woman could not be fooling around with someone who wasn't her husband and sullying the bloodline of his offspring. Hey, what patriarchy is worth its salt if you let the ladies <laughs> run, run amok, right? Right. Right, exactly. Well, it, it, um, is, it is fascinating to just the extent to which is boldly, you know, yeah. if, if you question, like, well, how did you and I were talking about this offline because, you know, we sit around talking about the patriarchy. Um, we do. We, yeah, we do. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the idea of what animates the drive to have these kinds of patriarchal cultures. And, of course, this is the big one, of course, the idea of lineage, of paternity, of ensuring whose child is whose and who controls the offspring. And this is the boldest, clearest example of it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, and also there was a lot of um, mor moral, uh, you know, Augustus informing this empire and, and codifying the structure of it. Like so many people looked back to the past and it was a you know, it was a rose-colored glasses vision of the past. And he looked at the, you know, Rome in the current time, in his current time and said, you know, it's an immoral society and we need to return to traditional values so that we can make, you know, the population more moral. Uh, and, like, and like most men who do that, he was a complete hypocrite. I'm sorry. I could, so can't stand Octavius. Oh I just, I, yes, anytime you mention him, I'm ready to go, oh. Okay. 100%. Yes. Right, 100%. And that moral past, clearly, you know, women had more freedoms during it, but that sort of didn't figure into the calculations, right? Um, anyway, there's a wonderful quote by Will Durant in a book called The Story of Civilization, where he says um, of Augustus, he destroyed his own happiness by trying to make people good as well as happy. It was an imposition that Rome never forgave. So he, he was not popular in imposing this idea of a paterfamilias, family value-centered life on Roman civilization. Um, well, what did you think of this? I mean, uh, we can obviously give it more detail on what he was mm -hmm. imposing, but I, the thing that struck me about like what he starts to impose is the fact, okay, he's he's trying to create this family-centered life, yet the understanding is still, one, you have him, you know, the Octavius uh, Augustus himself, who has tons of mistresses, lots of, you know, side side hustle, okay, right. for want of a yeah. better term. Yeah. Um, and the understanding that it's still okay for men to go and play around uh, at all times. So it's, it's this... It, it's, yeah, it's, it's completely like self-serving and one-sided. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it's. A, it's a, I just found it really astounding, and even the things he puts into effect. And I'm sorry, you go, you continue, but the things he puts into effect, I look at and I go, well, "This is not really going to work the way you think it will." Well, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the reasons that all of this came about is because um, the the native Romans, the, these you know, this group of Romans that expanded outward and created the Roman Empire and took over the Italians and these other cultures that were present in the geographical location, um, the Romans were a minority. And so in order to guard against more civil rebellion and more uprisings, they needed to increase the number of Romans um, and encourage uh, the Roman families, the ruling Roman families, to have as many children as possible. And there is no evidence that that is actually what happened. So, you know, even though he imposed these strict laws, there's no evidence that they actually worked. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Well, the first thing, though, let's maybe talk about this. One of the things that they had was the idea that, and this ties to the, the, the 
the other thing I'm going to is the the number of boys and girls you could have. You were expected to have three sons. They you were you they wanted you to have three sons, and to, you expected to raise. I should put it this way: you expected to raise your first three sons. That was your that was your duty. That was your expectation, and your firstborn daughter daughter. Any other girls would often just be left out to die. Yes. So if you've got a three to one rate, if you're having and it didn't exactly work out as a three to one ratio. But if you have a three to one ratio of men to women, on the whole, now obviously life expectancy was shorter, men would die in battle. There's all these different things. So from those But women the studies, would also die in childbirth. And childbirth, yes. Yeah. But the studies, the studies that I saw said that there was a 17% gap between the number of men and the number of women of yeah. that time period in Rome. You're for A, so there already you've got some trouble. You want to have kids and you keep killing off all the girls. It's not going to work out quite the way you think, unless you don't think women really have babies like so the Greeks did or well they did they they thought they did but they thought the male part of it was the was the most right was the determining factor yeah Yeah. you've got that but I've also read too that a lot of other factors contributed to why these they weren't having babies some of which are things we know from science now lead poisoning excessive Mm. drinking uh, but lead poisoning in particular, they're talking about because they had so many lead pipes, there was a lot of lead poisoning that occurred at the time. So that tends to lower uh, fertility rates. So does drinking. I mean, these guys would drink literally from the time they left the baths in the afternoon till dawn the next morning. Just constant alcoholism. And then other cultural behavior patterns, which tend to diminish the likelihood you're going to have kids. So, you know, he created this law, but it's sort of like wishful thinking. Right. Right. And also, they didn't quite understand um, a woman's cycle. They thought that women were fertile when they were menstruating, that that was the time that they were fertile. And so, you know, if you're practicing the rhythm method and you're trying to have sex, you know, you're trying to get pregnant and you're only having sex when you're menstruating, then it's not going to be very successful. You're not quite in rhythm. Yes, exactly. You're out of rhythm. You're yep. out of rhythm, exactly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of factors contributing. But to me, I, I especially thinking about this, the numbers, these the, these patriarchal cultures which place such emphasis on having sons and sons, daughters, beautiful, mm-hmm. both are beautiful. But if you place an overemphasis on that, I don't know how you think you're going to have a pretty healthy, stable population. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let and, me ask you, you know, and also, you know, Sorry. also this is classist because, of course, you know, he is these laws were specifically for the wealthy upper classes that he's trying to increase the population of because they believed that only the upper classes had the uh, moral character, the self-discipline, the dedication, the education, all of that, that they were the only ones who could really rule an empire that you know slaves and free and uh even freeborn lower classes like tradesmen and stuff like that they just you know they were a different type of person they didn't have what it takes and so you know if they wanted the empire to flourish that also these upper classes needed to flourish so it was not only sexist it was classist as well what do you think i mean it's interesting we talked about the last uh episode we did of this about Aristotle, we talked a little bit, we started to talk a little bit about the Greek notion of gender, male and female, uh, and we, we're getting a taste of it again here with the Romans. And so it's as patriarchy puts forward this adoration and worship of all things male, mm-hmm. and then finds itself, as the Greeks did in certain instances, the Spartans had this same problem of having population problems. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, what, what were you saying that uh, Maxim was talking about the maladaptiveness of, of patriarchy? Yes, patriarchy <laughs> is a maladaptation, which is, yeah. um, which we must credit Max Dashier with coming yes. up with that. Yeah, patriarchy is a maladaptation. Shout out, it's shout true. out to Max. This, yeah. this is a perfect example, but that's a yep. biological, you know, it's maladaptive, and you can't have a fertile, blossoming, growing population if you only pay attention to men. Oh, that was the other thing that was really interesting. Did the the Roman welfare system, the Roman system of giving out bread of the dole to free people who just didn't have the means, only applied to men. Right. They would only give men bread. 
I mean, and this again, this was we we get this, and I wonder how much our old pal Aristotle influenced this. Yeah. Because he certainly influenced Athens to not feed women the same way they fed men. Right. And then here you have Rome doing the same thing. It's like all these different things, one after the other. Yeah. And, and you know, as we know from modern studies uh, today, that is actually completely backwards. That if you really want to help the civilization, you give bread and money and resources only to the women. Mm-hmm. Because the women tend to not universal, but tend to invest those resources back into the society, back into their their family, their children, um, the, you know, to creating a better society. Whereas if you give many, if you give money directly to the men, they'll spend it on themselves. As well, they should, of course, <laughs> and their alcohol and. No, it is. It's your your point is well taken, and yes, we know that now. But it's amazing to think through. As we discuss this topic, we're we're, we're looking at and analyzing and trying to understand who we are now because of these people. So it's interesting yes. to think through yeah. the the number of internal contradictions that have to be held that we still deal with. The idea that they can elevate the notion of mass manhood, that they could make the idea of femininity it's why it it, it kind of bugs me when we define femininity certain ways but they've defined it and we've inherited it the idea of this you know just the the tender gentle fragile caring nurture passive exactly but yet they don't having that mindset you would think they'd say well here's the group we should probably give something to because they'll make sure that we flourish they'll be passive passive gentle weak fragile beings that feed us and make sure we grow. But no, they don't. It, they actually continue off in a way that runs counter to what they believe. It's, as, it's again, an example of these ideologies that feed themselves. And an ideology of the self, this patriarchal notion, just makes that come about. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was just reading a, a book that was talking about the sort of destroyer mindset and the the conditioning that has to be relentlessly enforced in order to perpetuate this destroyer mindset because it is so counterintuitive that the idea of trusting destroyers and conquerors to keep the civilization going, it's it doesn't make sense. You know, if you step back, if you remove yourself from our cultural conditioning and say, hmm, which would be better for society? People who raid and destroy and conquer and kill or people who build and nurture and are egalitarian and interdependent, which is stronger in the long run, right? If you actually step out of the paradigm and take a look at it, it's rather obvious, you know, which one you should choose. But we, <laughs> but we have been conditioned century after century, millennia after millennia, to to automatically choose the destroyer mindset, and a lot of that is due to ancient Greece and ancient Rome and our reverence for their cultures. And think about this: there are. Roman law is still the basis of civil law in many countries throughout Europe, the, the very basis of their law system. Now, we have it as part of the basis of our political structure, and it's inherent. There, there are aspects of it in our law system. We have common law, and that's influenced by, of course, the developments in, in England and the notion of, of case law and precedence. But the many mainland European uh, states have the civil law system based on, I think it's the codes of Justinian, uh, which were a redoing of the codes of Rome, Justinian being a 7th century Byzantine emperor. And of course, that was a Rome, but that was Rome. Uh, It was Rome living on in the East, and he helped even kind of bring some of the West back into it. But when you say about how we're influenced by it, now I'm not saying those codes directly have patriarchal, you know, these particular patriarchal aspects. What I'm saying is the fact that we, that's how still resonant yes. Greece and Rome is in our lives, and Rome in particular, 
And if that's resonant there, then you can't doubt that these other things are there as well. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to the actual laws themselves, um, the law stated that all men between 25 and 60 and all women between 20 and 50 must be married. They had to be married. And when I say all, I mean in the upper classes again, specifically the under upper classes. If a woman's was divorced, now divorce happened very frequently. It was not stigmatized in Rome. Um, you know, once you had accomplished what you needed to accomplish in the business arrangement of this marriage, you could divorce. But a woman who was divorced had six months grace period, and then she must be married again. And a woman who was widowed had a year grace period, and then she must remarry. So it institutionalized marriage. Right. And the family. Because, and and mm -hmm. basically put politics into the bedroom. It's interesting because the, the earlier system, I mean, you had these different types of marriages that occurred and you had ways for people to be married without having to have the particular uh, structural stipulations of marriage. There were all these, there were three different forms of marriage. One form you could sort of like, it was like a year long. It was, it was like a leasing system. Like you were leasing your wife or your exactly. husband and exactly. you would just kind of, you know, by the end of the lease, you could do something where if you didn't spend three days together, the lease has to start over again. So you would be able to stay married, avoid problems of not being married, uh, and yet have these arrangements that really don't tax you at all. And so that's one of the things that, that uh, Augustus was trying to stop. But it was also interesting, the notion that you had people being divorced and remarried in the earlier era. And that was one of the things they were concerned about, women's, you know, having the sorts of freedom like that. Because the thing, you know, you and I were talking about, about the Romans is, the women had a greater level of freedom than in some other parts of the ancient world, but only freedom that did not in any way threaten the patriarchal structure the of state, the, yeah. the state. Yeah. Exactly. So they could, you know, they could go around and, you know, play around a little bit more, you know, by that, I mean, you know, libidinously, um, because really the guys, all they wanted was to be able to, you know, the whole thing about Rome and the Roman man is that he was supposed to be a guy who would take, Anything, any body he wanted would be his, their body yes. would be his. So he didn't really yep. care whether his so-called wife was out doing something so long as she didn't inhibit him. And so long as she didn't think that she could have any effect on the state, the laws of the state. So, yes. so it's yeah. interesting that this kind of shifts that around, changes that. Um, but there's also the interesting thing about dowries and, and right. Yes. Inheritances yeah. and yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah, we'll get no, to that. that. We'll get sure. to that. Go yeah. ahead. Sure. So in 18 BCE, the uh, the Julian law for the repression of adultery was passed. So this law made adultery a crime. Now, we mo in modern times, we define adultery as um, a person who is married having sex with someone other than their spouse. That was not the definition of adultery in ancient Rome. <laughs> Uh, the definition of adultery was a married woman having sex with someone who was not her husband, regardless of their status, a married man having sex with a married woman who was a woman of upper class and not his wife. Wait a minute. So are you saying the Romans were only concerned that an upper-class man not be cheated on? I, I think that's what I'm saying. Unbelievable. <laughs> Who would have thought that? Exactly. So, um, so a man, there were a couple of small restrictions on men. Um, other than he can't have sex with some another upper class married woman. And mm -hmm. that is that if the man had sex with a unmarried girl or boy of high status, 
He was not guilty of adultery, but he could run the risk of being accused and persecuted for rape. Mm -hmm. But a man who was married, an upper-class man who was married, could have sex with a prostitute, a concubine, a freed woman, men, uh, freed men, or slaves, his or someone else's, and he was not guilty of adultery. As well as so, trees, all other forms of living exactly. beings. Exactly. I mean, Farm really, animals. I mean, exactly. You name I, it. Yeah. I'm being, I'm being this yeah. sort of facetious, but it's not. I mean, that's really, it, he was prized for as many conquests of any type he could think of. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you, they didn't want to yeah. stop that. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, anyone was free game except upper class married women and. Uh, in terms of adultery, um, and then he possibly could be accused of rape if he went after an upper-class unmarried boy or girl. So the penalties were really the kicker. They were very severe. So if a woman committed adultery and her father caught her, the father could kill his daughter and their lover, uh, and her lover. So he could, without impunity, with perfect impunity, kill his own daughter and her lover. The husband was not technically allowed to kill his wife if he caught her in adultery, but the law was gentle on him if he did so, because, you know, we understand that he was truly you know, abused and transgressed against by this act. And if he lost his temper and killed her, oh, well. Yeah, no, it's interesting. If he caught, catches her in the act, and it's still, I believe, the the basis of, in some, again, in some systems still to yes. this day, the idea of the, the crime of passion being excusable. Yes. To exactly. This, I mean, to this in, day. To this day. To this day. So yep. again, if you if you wonder if this is just an academic discussion and we're just having a talk about stuff that uh, you know just that off went the top out of right? fashion yeah. centuries ago, no, 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 no it didn't. Still, yeah, I mean the this yeah. stuff lives with us and it's lives with us still. This topic yeah, is important. Um, if a husband uh, found his wife guilty of adultery, he was required to divorce her or he would be prosecuted for being a pimp. Amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's... Yeah, I mean... It everything right there. Right? It, it, is, it, it has removed the... It has removed the personal relationship out of the... You know, like, the husband and wife cannot make their own decisions about the laws of their marriage, about the way their marriage works. They cannot make their own decisions about it. The state has imposed a structure on them. So, yes, a husband had 60 days to prosecute his wife when she was accused of adultery. And if he did not do so, the case could be taken up by someone else, including a state magistrate. So the state would step in and could prosecute his wife of adultery, even if he didn't want to. You know, it's interesting listening to you describe this. It's, it's again, our culture, our American culture, and for the people listening around the world, I'm sure Western culture and writ large, um, still has this kind of structure, the 60-day time period, the, mm. the, the rules and controls. But we do this for, you know, credit or finance, but it's still the exact same manner of conduct. And it's just yeah. amazing to think about this. 2000 years deeply, ago. Yeah, how yeah. deeply our society is still influenced by these practices of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah. So, um the the two parties that were felt, found guilty, the the adulterous wife and her lover were to be exiled. The woman lost half her dowry and a third of any other property that she held, but she was able to keep half of her dowry to live on, on the island. Um, the men lost half of their property when they were exiled. The lovers must be exiled to different islands. 
So they were never allowed to see each other again. If a woman was pardoned and allowed to, like after a certain number of years of serving her exile, if she was allowed to return from exile, she was not allowed to remarry. So she would, she was basically a permanent pariah from that point on. And, um, and marriage provided a lot of benefits as the, as the culture was structured. Exactly. Because there were other exactly. opportunities. So you're, yeah, you're basically Yeah, there were, there were positive incentives as well, which um, uh, if women stayed married, and this is, you know, evidenced by um, Julia the Elder, who was the daughter of Augustus and Livia. Um, Julia the Elder, in her second marriage, because her first marriage, uh, her first husband died uh, after they'd been married for two years and had no children. Augustus remarried her, and Augustus did it. She had no choice in this. To Agrippa, and with him, she had three sons and two daughters. And so Agrippa was. I just, I just so for the listener, Agrippa was one of uh, Octavian's uh, Augustus's great commanders, great generals. Yes, uh, yes. One he of his remarries his. He remarries her to his buddy, basically. His buddy, yeah, yeah. And his first, uh, I think her first husband was um, his cousin, his sister's son. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, he's keeping the power in the family. Keeping um, it in the family, right. Keeping it in the family, exactly. So um, the, the perks, as you mentioned, as we mentioned earlier, they had to have three sons, right? So after mm-hmm. you had three sons, after a woman had three sons, she was allowed a smidge more freedom. She was allowed to um, have control over her dowry money within the marriage. And she was allowed to exist without a guardian. Uh, They call it a tutor um, in a lot of the literature. But it essentially meant that she was allowed to go places without a a male chaperone, her husband's chaperone. Um, so she had a slight bit more personal freedom than she and, had before. And also just being married again, we thinking in modern terms, it's not like you had career women in Rome. Yes. There wasn't really a lot. I mean, we know of course, in any era, there were always different kinds of women. Sure. There were women who had careers, but by and large, it was not the norm. So if you it was not the upper class norm, there were, you know, freed women were shopkeepers and, you know, and took part in trades because they didn't have fortunes. So they, they had to earn money. So um, there were, uh, there were some, um, there are some uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my goodness! Examples? Provisions. There we okay. go. Mm-hmm. Provisions um, for freed women who owned businesses um, in the in the laws of Rome. But um, yeah, again, this is about upper class women. Right. It's about and and it, I still see that same sort of thing again in contemporary culture, where we look at certain subcultures, sometimes immigrants, sometimes based on different groups and backgrounds. And we are comfortable, a little more comfortable with empowerment. I call it the not my wife syndrome, empowerment in some of these groups than in the elite or the wealthy or the central groups in culture. We, you know, it's, we say we, it's, I liken it to the guy who says, I'm all about female empowerment, but my wife is good. Not my wife. She's got, you know, she's got a good life, you know? It's sort of that sort of thing. And that's kind of the sense. She's happy with get, what she's got. She's yeah. happy with what she's got. You know, the yeah. not my wife syndrome. She doesn't need it. That's what you get there. But even so, I'm still sure it was difficult on those individual tradeswomen as well. So marriage just in these kinds of cultures provided a safety net, um, which I'm not saying was a good thing. I'm just saying that's just what it was. And so when you make it so that a person can't be married because she's committed adultery, if she's upper class, she and she has half of that family, half of her dowry, half of whatever assets were, then fine. But if not, it's going to be a tough life. Yeah. And, and this is not, uh, the interesting thing is, is to point out that adultery was perceived as a crime against the family and the household. It wasn't considered a sin 
in the sense of Judeo-Christian law, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. It wasn't a moral judgment. It was a it was a business and civic crime. Would you say though it probably is also a um, judgment of a man's uh, of a man of someone's manhood? Uh, would you wrap that you under know, the civic maybe, notion? You know, I didn't come across any of that in the in the literature. It really is um, more. Uh, uh, it's more impersonal than that. Um, Whether or not, Mm. whether or not it was considered that, you know, in the, amongst the actual population is a different question. I mean, there's, there's art and, and literature that I'm sure pokes fun at uh, men for being cuckolded in Rome. Um, I'm just wondering because the passion, because the law of the passion of a guy committing that act of violence killing yeah and so there would obviously have to be some element of it that affects his ego well the father the father you know again paterfamilias the father could kill his daughter with impunity he he, you know domestic violence was not a crime sure well but that's what i'm driving at i wonder if there is also the element even if it's the element of she's a form of his property or his assets and someone is taking it you know taking part of his what is his um i just throw that out there i think there, yeah, there I mean, it legally, feels like in a patriarchy yeah, there would be that absolutely sensibility. absolutely i mean it is split it is absolutely splitting hairs but mm-hmm. um adultery is not a crime against property it's a crime against the household the family mm-hmm. um so it's not you know yes the wife may very well have been the property in quotes of her husband, but in terms of the the Lex Julia, Mm -hmm. it's not a property law. It's a a household law. It's a crime against the family. So at that point, if he is, if she's transferred into the man's household, then in that case, it might be. But the father still has jurisdiction over her. Like, again, you know, looking at the, the, the penalties for adultery, the father has the right to kill an adulterous daughter, but the husband is, is discouraged from doing that. You know, he, he, is, he is not allowed to kill her. He will be punished not as severely as, you know, as, as if he murdered a, a, another citizen. Um, another, you know, male Roman, but but it really is less about the husband and wife, the wife being the property of the husband, but more about the household, the bloodlines, the family, and the father is the head of the family. Well, again, we're then we've got still this uh, the patriarchy, but coming through in this other way. So from that yeah, from that yeah. standpoint, so it is interesting. Again, we've got this. Yeah, He's, and the father, the father, there, right. and the children. As you were, I'm sorry. Uh, as you were mentioning, older, I want to expand this idea a little bit. the The husband has power over his own children, right? So the idea of um, infanticide, which was not a, a crime at all in ancient oh, Rome, infanticide no. was regularly practiced. Yeah, it was a form of population control for them. It was just and totally yeah, normal. exactly. So there was a, a tradition where. Um, the Romans required that um, the husband, the father of a child, physically raise the child up after, right after birth, and that was a recognition of that child as a legitimate child of that man. So the father claimed the child by physically raising it up after it was born. If the father did not do that, then the child was not recognized by the father, not claimed by the father, and was taken out to the hillside and left there, left to die. So the child was killed if the father did not claim it. Again, another astonishing thing to our modern sensibilities. And I, I, frankly, in my opinion, to human sensibility, but that's my own editorial. Taking children and just leaving them. There was a particular location in Rome where they would do that, um, and sometimes the children might a child might be taken in by a freed person, maybe even slaves, you know, that sort of thing. But 
by and large, the, but, you can yeah, just the put child, your child out. Yeah, the child did not belong to that high class family anymore. If, if you know, as happens so many times in, in, you know, the literature and the legends and the stories of the time, you know, wandering shepherds would find a baby and would take it home and raise it. So that was, you know, that was not illegal. But the child then became the property of that lower class person and became a lower class person. So, um, it, you know, the yeah, connection, the... yeah, the connection to the wealth and the inheritance and all of the influence of being upper class was completely severed. Again, another part of the basis of our constant, the number of our stories about the baby who's actually the, the, the a prince and he really right. doesn't know it. You know, was it Harry Potter kind of thing? It's the, you know, we see it in the Iliad with Paris. It's just, it's the trope that goes on and on. And this is partly why that's influenced by that. So, okay, so you've got these, he raises three sons, uh, he's expected, and by raise, you, you described how it is, and he one... physically raised them, yes. yeah, yeah. And one daughter. Well, he's and, expected to at least one daughter. Yes, but he has two daughters. So he actually recognizes two daughters. Right, no, I'm just saying that the the law, the, the right, expectation yes. in cultures that he has, it's the firstborn daughter, daughter that matters, and then three sons that he raises, and then everybody else, particularly if they're female, it's just kind of like, whatever, fair game. So... Yeah. I, now, again, it's a, you would wonder how they wouldn't think this might come become yeah, this a problem. Might backfire in yeah. the long run, right? Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was um, it was fairly accepted. Again, you know, this is something that has come down to us throughout um, time. Is that um, there was it was generally understood that there would be an age differential between the woman and the man, between the husband and the wife. Women were allowed to get engaged at. Uh, or girls, I should say, were allowed to be engaged at 10 years old. Um, because uh, one of the, the Lex Papia Papiae, uh, oh, geez, Louise. You got it. Go for it. Yeah, the Lex Papia Papaia in 9 AD. <laughs> Oh my God! Lens, good lens. Usually, it's it's you can usually sound it out as it's spelled exactly. because you can think through as the it's modern spelled. Languages. Yeah, yeah so. um, which was the the sort of adjustment to the original eighteen BCE laws. Um, people people were uh, getting around the marriage laws by um, by getting uh, engaging, uh, making an engagement between a dude and like a five-year-old girl, and then, you know, having a 20-year engagement. So technically, you know, they were engaged, so um, they they weren't being punished for not being married. Um, so in 9 AD, the adjustment um, said that you could only have a two-year engagement. So the earliest you could engage, uh, get engaged to or get a girl engaged was 10 years old and she was allowed to be legally married at 12. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, I, we don't, we need not say much uh, yeah. uh, beyond the Again, obvious about how insane that is, but, but to be, to be understanding, we, not that it's okay for the 12 year old, their idea was of fertility and death rates. But well, but I would, crazy. I would also remind you that, not all states in our great United States of America have a minimum age for marriage for girls. Ah, uh, yes, I know. It's, there uh, are states where yeah. girls can be married with by their father, exact same pattern, can be married by their father at any age. So you're saying we don't have the we're not living under the same kind of circumstances as ancient Rome? Are you casting uh, a, a doubt or shadow on this kinds of practices? Oh, so many aspersions, Sean. Yeah. So many aspersions I am casting. I'm mm -hmm. casting them right and left. I have a basket of aspersions and I'm just tossing I, them. I am just shocked that you would you would uh, really go at <laughs> these marriage laws in some states. Well, I mean, it's, it, it is... I expect, it, that I expect, you know, that I expect the, the girls to actually be allowed to 
resist marriage until they're, oh, I don't know, at a healthy age where they can where they can reproduce without their bodies being permanently damaged. That's it's, crazy. It's amazing to me that it's still, we still have the echoes of this behavior pattern. It's still there. It's still around. Um, we're, we're coming up against our sort of the end, uh, our, our time. So how would, let's, let's see if we can kind of bring this into some relief, but for you, I mean, really, because this is something that you wanted to discuss. What do you want to leave our listeners with, with respect to this? Uh, and if there's anything that you think you need to, you know, throw in as well, please do so that, that you yeah. have covered. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, oh, uh, one, one little piece of, um, of uh, incentive that we for, that I for, didn't get a chance to mention was that um, that married men were given priority and the number of children that men had were um, were taken into account in in terms of jobs. Oh so right, like in, yes. In government hiring, if two men were both married and one of them had three sons and the other one had two sons, the men with the three sons would get the job. If they both had, um, if they both had the same number of children, you, you know, it was like it was a whole hierarchy. If they were both married and only one um, man had children, then he would get the job. If they were both married with children, the man with more children would get the job. If they were both married and they both had the same amount of children, then merit would be considered. <laughs> or fight to the death. They throw them in the ring as gladiators. No, I, I guess <laughs> yeah, it's, no. it's, it's, um, but yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, there were all sorts of, um, of, uh, ways in which, um, this encouragement to stay, be married, stay married, have children, have legitimate children, um, were, uh, reinforced in the society. Incredible. Um, um, yeah. Incredible. So what, what do you, what do you, what did you take from this, from your, from your uh, study and research into these laws and what is it that, you know, particularly within the context of this, the, this series of misogyny in the ancient world, what would you yeah. leave us with? Oh, well, I think, you know, I think we hit a lot of the points in the discussion, but the idea that, you know, when, um, when a patriarchal government wants to make changes, the first thing it does is attack the rights of women and try to control the women because, you know, as you and I have sort of talked about before, it's like low hanging fruit, right? Like who can we, who can we oppress the easiest women, women, slaves, uh, people of the lower classes, right? Boom. That's our first patriarchy's first go-to. Um, and that this very, system of trying to oppress and control women's bodies and trying to oppress um, whole classes of people, it's counterintuitive in terms of what you're actually trying to accomplish. And not only is it counterintuitive, it's not effective. It does not work in the long term. It may work in the immediate term, like it will, it will get you a wife and it will put her body at your disposal. But in terms of maintaining the society and actually accomplishing goals, it will never stand because human beings will fight against oppression. The very nature of humans of the glorious, glorious creatures that we are with our intellect and our emotions and our heart and our love and all of the positive things about human beings. We cannot exist under that kind of oppression. And we will either... <laughs> there's a, there's a uh, when we were talking about Aristotle, and um, and his precepts about women, 
um, one of the things that I didn't get, uh, that I didn't remember to talk about in that segment, he had just this little, little side comment about slavery and how, you know, uh, we can oppress women, we'll oppress women, you know, women are, are, you know, second class citizens. And then he had this little side comment that was like, and let, don't even get me started on slavery because can anyone figure out how to keep slaves happy? When you treat them well, they, you know, it goes to their head and they start to take liberties. And when you treat them, you know, when you beat them within an inch of their lives, then they hate you. It's like, Mm. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's because slavery as a system is, is wrong and is counterproductive to humanity. But Take in the fact that that he was the tutor to Alexander, and Alexander spread the tenets of his philosophy throughout most of the known yeah. world. Yeah, and they never they never made the, that extra intuitive leap. You know, it's like, well, how do you control your slaves? Can anyone keep slaves happy? Well, maybe don't have them. I, I think that's a good it's a it's a good thing for people to think about because it, what it reminds you is that when you are born into a privileged position. You don't question it. You simply mm-hmm. ride with it. You enjoy it. And I think that's even the great minds. And Aristotle unquestionably was one of the great thinkers in human history. But right. look at all the holes in his thought. Yeah. He, even so many him, blind so, spots. So many yeah. blind spots. On that note, and on the beautiful note of the standing up against oppression, let us call this episode to an end and thank Dawn Sam Alden for discussing this wonderful topic with us. <laughs> and thank you, Sean Marlon Newcomb, for your you. extensive knowledge of Roman history and Roman thought. We could not have done this without you. Thank you. I'll give a little cheer. Yes, exactly. I never, I never give myself a cheer. So. Give yourself all right. a cheer. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, I want to thank you all for listening to the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. This has been Misogyny in History. We were talking about the Julian Laws. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Bye.